a walls-down discussion with the leaders of our time. Let's join their journey and find out how they got to where they are today. These are the days I know I know. These are the days I know I know. Welcome to Can Art Studio, the home of the Riddick Show. If you've been a great supporter and listener of season one, you'll know our mission is to empower future leaders and demonstrate that people of all walks of life can make an impact. The leadership path starts within you. Embrace your history, acknowledge your experiences, and apply them to your mission. Today's guest, David Dodson, understands identifying our attributes are going to be our superpowers. From building an economic model that bets on people while investing his money and time and sitting on over 50 boards on some of the most successful growth companies in history. He educates us today that we can teach and impact the world through our own life experiences. David believes what gets written down gets done. We are lucky to be introducing David's upcoming book, The Manager's Handbook. It sounds so simple. If it's through his years of experience and research, with his access to the top and the greatest innovators of our time, like Steve Jobs and many others, we're so lucky to have him on our show today. Welcome, Dave. I can't wait to hear what you have to say. Dave, maybe you can uh, start us off with just giving us a little bit of uh, history on yourself. You know, where did you grow up? Um, what did your parents do? Give us a little bit of background on your family life and what it was like growing up. Sure, happy to. Uh, I grew up in a small town. Uh, actually, the, I didn't even really grow up in town. The closest town had a population of about 325 people. <laughs> and it was pretty much divided between ranchers and farmers. And it was uh, rural Colorado. My dad was in the farm equipment manufacturing business. So he had a factory that manufactured farm equipment. And I remember as a kid doing two things with him that were meaningful in my background and growing up. One was going to the factory where he built farm equipment. And uh, he had a desk that was his father's desk. And it was so regal. And he would sit behind the desk. And I just saw him and said, I want to be like that someday running a business. And then we'd go back or I'd walk out into the factory and the welders and the sparks were flying and yeah, farm equipment's big. So if you're a kid right. and you're seeing farm being built, it's pretty impressive. And then it went to the paint room and turned from uh, rusted color metal to blue and white. And I was so proud of him and I admired him so much. And my grandfather ran with his brother, my great uncle, ran what was at the time one of the largest coal mines in the United States in Pennsylvania. Wow. They made coal that was called anthracite coal, which uh, and, and so they had railroads and barges. And so this is sort of the environment that I grew up in. I was in rural Colorado, but my dad had a manufacturing facility that was pretty good sized. And my grandfather was running a big coal mine and I just wanted to be like them. Well, what happened, David, was that anthracite coal was completely displaced by harder and hotter burning coal in Wyoming principally lignite coal and all those coal mines went under wow. and there was policy changes in washington dc when i was a junior in college that essentially put my dad's business out of my dad's uh company out of business as well and so i watched these two people doing what i wanted to do with my life pretty much both of them their company went under 
And that had a profound impact on me, but I didn't realize it at the time. It was many, many years later that I realized that the big impact was not that I didn't want to be an entrepreneur, although you could argue that maybe I was an unlikely entrepreneur given that experience, but that I did not want to be in businesses or in situations where market forces that were outside my control were going to determine my success or failure. I wanted to do that all on my own. And I, I really do believe, David, looking back on it, that is one of the things that attracted me to the search fund model, for example, and entrepreneurship through acquisition versus trying to start something and uh, seeing around corners and inventing things. I didn't want to do that. I was always focused on implementation and execution within existing markets. Yeah, I, I understand that that control issue. Um you know, I, uh, my dad was a uh, chief of surgery at a hospital and he used to drop me off when he did his, what they call grand rounds, you know, every, yeah, sure. every Saturday morning where they would yeah. take all, it was a teaching hospital. So he would take all his young doctors around, but he would leave me at the nurse's station and, uh, and they would uh, walk me around and show me, I, I was just in awe of everything they did. But then I went, I watched my dad, you know, who went to school for 17 years to become a general surgeon. And, uh, I saw that he had no control over his financial, mm. his financial future, you know, in Canada were capped at what doctors can make. And it did have a, I'm is similar in the sense that I, I used to just think he was, I want to be that someday. And, uh, but I didn't like the fact that he had no control over his future. You know, it was determined by forces that had nothing to do with how well he did his job, that sort of thing. So I'm, I totally understand that. And, and it must've been something else though, to be seeing those huge machines when you're six, eight, 10 years old. And, uh, and I can even imagine your dad's desk, um, what well and, and also on the on the weekends by the way we would go out to the farmers and walk the fields now my dad's farm equipment was sold through farm dealers very similar to how cars are sold mm -hmm. but he wanted to be very close to the end user so i have these just magical memories of walking behind the equipment that he designed and built and sold and then watch it is it is it you know, it was pulled behind a tractor and it would dig up sugar beets out of the field and put them, you know, lift them up and clean all the dirt and drop them in a, in, into a, uh, a front end loader. And it, there was just something magical about also seeing it work and walking behind, you know, as a little kid and my dad would talk into this tape recorder as he was seeing things that he wasn't, didn't think were quite right about the, the equipment that he built. I was just so proud of him. Yeah, no, it, it uh, that is a great story. So as you get through high school then, Dave, um, and you're starting to think about, you know, what you've learned, um, trying to balance the passion that you have for what your dad was doing uh, and and what you felt the market forces were doing, how did that influence where you went to school and, and what you decided to sort of start to learn at that point? Well, I don't think it didn't, it didn't really have an influence on where I went to school. I got, I got into Stanford as an undergrad, and that was hands down the 
right choice given the other schools I, uh, I got into. So it had no impact on where I went to school. It did impact that I arrived at school broke <laughs> and my parents weren't in a position to help out. And it impacted that I was, I mean, I was sort of a sheltered hayseed kid. I mean, I arrived at the Stanford campus with Western boots and a hat chewing tobacco, if you can imagine that. Yeah. And you know, I was surrounded from people with from Beverly Hills and Manhattan and Greenwich, Connecticut. And uh, the first time we went to San Francisco, I literally was looking up the buildings thinking, oh, my God, I didn't realize they could build buildings so tall. Yeah, because I was seeing them in real life. Of course, I had seen them on pictures. I'm not. I'm not trying to pretend that I never never seen a photo. No, but it's very different. I never seen it live. Yeah, Um, my mom also was a. So my parents were divorced early on. My mom got remarried, Um, and but a lot of my growing up with my mom was when she was a single mom working at Wellington High uh, Junior High School or Middle School, which was a very small school, probably. 200 kids or something like that. Mm-hmm. And she worked her butt off. And I think I got a lot of my work ethic as well from my mother. You don't really know the actual impact of these influences of your teachers and your siblings and your parents. And I'm sure there's all sorts of biases that you back into how you are today based on the qualities that you admire or the events that were positive or negative in your in your growing up. But I truly do think that a huge element of my work ethic came from my mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that. That's not surprising. I mean, I having done this show and having interviewed, you know, hundreds and hundreds of CEOs, I I do think that there is an authentic piece to leaders like yourself that have grown up with those kind of of you know grander visions of of what people are capable of and uh and i think that work ethic is is something that we need to think more about as we move forward um tell me by the way by the way you chuckled when i said i arrived at school broke uh i took my classes in the morning i finished school early in it wasn't a big difference. Well, it was actually a big financial difference. I, I finished school early, one and a half quarters early to save money. But I would take my classes in the morning so that I could borrow my roommate's car and drive to the slaughterhouse in San Jose and work in the slaughterhouse in the afternoons. <laughs> Probably the only Stanford student ever who paid for his way through college working in a slaughterhouse. But they paid really well. And I hated the, I hated the job, David, but it paid well. And uh, the reason why that was significant in my life is that I know what it's like to have a job that you hate, but you need the money. Yeah. And it's easy for people that I tend to hang around with now because I teach at Stanford and I invest with entrepreneurs that tend to do pretty well, uh, is to forget that a lot of the people that we interact with, not only as leaders, but also just as consumers, just going up to the counter to buy something, they don't get the luxury of having a job that they love, that gives them inspiration, that they have passion around. They just need the money. And I'll never forget what it's like to have a job that was 
so abhorrent, but I had to show up there every day because I needed the money. Yeah. Well, you know, some would say maybe that uh, prepared you pretty well for the battles of Silicon Valley uh, hmm. and the tech boom. Um, so you, as you got through Stanford, um, what did you take at Stanford, Dave? I graduated with a degree in economics, but I took the minimum number of units to graduate in economics, and I used the extra capacity to take classes principally in history. And I did it just because I enjoyed it. And then I took every writing class that was available at Stanford that I could get my hands on. Interestingly, and if, as you know, I just finished writing a book that's coming out next week. My, If you said to me, what are you most passionate about? What is really the thing that gets you, you know, get your endorphins flying? My whole life, it's always been pen on paper. Yep. It, it, uh, I, I agree with that a hundred percent. Um, it's interesting, you know, when you said that, that you took, uh, you took history and sort of laid off the economics. Uh, I remember meeting, uh, a, a, a former pretty famous bank CEO that worked his way up from being a teller, believe it or not, to being the CEO of the bank, one of the largest banks in the world. And, uh, he refused at that time, he said, to hire uh, MBA students, which I, I, I couldn't connect in the beginning. But he said, I would rather have somebody that has a rounded understanding of the world through history, the arts. I can teach them how to read a balance sheet fairly quickly. Mm. And he took a very different approach. Um, how does that fit? you know, with your background. I know it's very odd thinking, but. Well, what I hear from that story, David, and of course you've built a career helping to try to identify talent, is that there's two aspects to what you're looking for in hiring. And by the way, I I spent a fair amount of time covering this in my book, The Manager's Handbook, which is that half of it is sort of, and I don't mean half of it, meaning I, sh I actually shouldn't even use the word half. One part of it is attributes, and the other part of it are the things that would lead to the outcomes that you would want. And on the attribute side of it, what I have observed in my own career, but more importantly, observed in really, really good leaders who I admire, who I've learned a lot from, is that attributes are very hard to teach. You have to just identify what attributes you want and hire into those. But if someone doesn't have those attributes about work ethic, let's say, or what it's like to be a bank teller and deal with a customer who is furious because the line was too long, even though you had nothing to do with the line and you just want to get done at the end of the day so you can get your grocery shopping done so you can get the kids in bed so you can go to sleep so you can wake up and do it again the next morning. If you haven't experienced that, you can't teach it. And what I heard from the story that you said, David, is that this bank CEO said, I can teach I can teach the balance sheet issue. That is sort of easy, but I can't teach you what it's like to have empathy. I can't teach you what it's like to be kind. You have to just arrive with that. Bang on, David. That's exactly what I was, I was getting at. Um, so when you, it, it, just to take a bit of a step back, 
you know, you've gotten to Stanford now, you're, you're into your, what I expect is a, is a big investment in your future, uh, at Stanford, given that you got there broke. Um, where did, did, where, who was the most impactful person in your life at that point in terms, did you have a professor, um, a business partner or somebody that, that you had worked with that, that really sort of opened up a whole new world for you and helped you feel good about where you were going or gave you some more perspective on where you were going? So I already mentioned my parents, so I'm going to move beyond that and give you an unlikely name, a fellow named Hugh O'Brien. And Hugh O'Brien was a very famous actor in the black and white world and was arguably one of the Hollywood heartthrobs. And he played most notably the character Wyatt Earp uh, in uh, the show called Wyatt Earp. TV show. It's a very popular TV series. So everybody of my parents' generation or my you know, half generation above me knows who Hugh Bryant, who Hugh O'Brien is. Yeah. So when I was 15, and I'm going to bring this into college because that was the nature of your question. When I was 15, uh, he had started this, or or prior to me being 15, he had started the, the Hugh O'Brien Youth Foundation after spending some time with Albert Schweitzer in Africa. And the idea was to try to identify people and expose them to leaders that were that they could look up to and so i was the delegate selected from colorado there's only six people in the whole country we went to chicago and uh, i guess actually that might have been the first time i saw a tall building uh, when i think about it <laughs> and um we were exposed to the governor of illinois and the ceo of the new york times etc cetera, etc cetera. and that changed the trajectory of my life in a way that was quite profound because I looked at those people and thought, okay, they're pretty regular folks that I'm having lunch with and so forth. And I'm 15 and they're 65 years old, but I could, I could relate to them. I could see that I could be like them. I would hear their stories about them growing up and saying, wow, that growing up story is not that dissimilar to my growing up. So that gave me a huge amount of inspiration. Hugh O'Brien in particular then became an important uh, mentor and father figure in my life. And I ended up working for him, uh, as a volunteer and also in the summers, uh, in addition to other work that I had. And I worked for May department stores, which at the time was one of the largest department stores. These are summers in college. I worked for Atlantic Richfield company. I worked for him one summer. Uh, and all of those jobs were a result of him. So he really helped me, get exposure to a business and work environment outside of college. Well, it's, uh, you and know, by the way, by, by the way, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story. Great. Not a funny story, but interesting story. He died a few years ago, maybe four years ago. And his, he didn't got, he got married very late in life. He was probably 70, 80 years old when he got married. Cause he was one of Hollywood's most famous bachelors. But I didn't know his wife, Virginia, and I got an email from her about six months ago. And it's and she said she's auctioning off some of his memorabilia. Would I be interested in it? Well, he had two handguns that he used in the famous TV series. And so I ended up a few months ago buying one of his two handguns, which is one of my 
just most cherished possessions. And you can see if you if you if you were to YouTube Hugh O'Brien, you would see him using the gun. So he meant so much to me that I I overpaid for a for a revolver the other day. <laughs> well, I I can totally understand that. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, Dave search funds. Um, you know, I've worked uh, obviously in that industry for many, many years and, uh, am, am very, um, uh, educated on what it is, but I bet our listeners aren't, aren't really up to date on what, how that differs from a typical venture investment or a private equity investment. And, and I think it's, you know, it's the betting on people part that I love so much about it and and less betting on technology um can you maybe give us just a brief uh, overview of of what the search fund is i know that that you were involved in school in writing case studies um for uh you know irv grausbeck early in in your career tell see if you, maybe you could just bring that to life for us a little bit sure so I, after I graduated from college, I worked at McKinsey and Company, and then I went back to business school at Stanford. And in between my first and second year, I was talking to a second year student, or, or she she was graduating, and I said, okay, what are the electives I should try to get into the next year? And she said, well, there's this new guy, Irv Grosbeck, he just taught his first year at Stanford, and he was fantastic, so you should try to get into his class. So he didn't have much of a reputation at the time, because he just taught one year. It was the only time, David, that I sat in the front row in two years of business school. I was one of the guys who sat in the back row and um, they called it the sky deck back then, but I, I <laughs> was really interested in this guy. So uh, they had a program at Stanford, which was effectively take a faculty member out to lunch. She would invite him to lunch. They sort of felt obligated to say yes. And the, and the school paid for it. So I asked him to have lunch and he kind of had to say, Yes, although we probably would have anyway. And we went to the Peninsula Valerie Creamery in Palo Alto. And Professor Grossbeck's a pretty formal guy. And I was pretty nervous. And that's a bad combination for free-flowing com conversation, right? And so there were these periods of silence, and I didn't know what to say and uh, trying to keep the conversation going. And he was perfectly polite, but he's just sort of formal, and I was scared to death. And then <laughs> completely out of the blue... He says to me, you know, I'm thinking about buying the San Francisco Giants. You want to help me with that? Now, David, wow. remember, I remember the story I told you about arriving with chewing tobacco in the side of my mouth. <laughs> yeah. and I grew up, uh, the, the idea that some person was going to say, do you want to help me buy a professional baseball team was mind blowing. Well, also, I didn't know much about baseball, but of course, I, I was smart enough to say yes. And then I... Uh, contacted a classmate of mine who was actually an undergrad classmate too, Eddie Poplowski, and I and who knew a lot about baseball. I said, Eddie, you got to help me out. Irv Grosbeck wants to buy a, a baseball team. I don't know anything about baseball, so let's do it together. So he and I work with Irv Grosbeck, and that's how I got to know him pretty well my second year of business school, which meant, and that led to, that relationship led to one day when I had offers to go back to McKinsey and 
you know, other other conventional jobs. And none of it felt right because the 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 memory of my father and my grandfather and the coal mines and the farm manufacturing and all of that, it didn't go away. It didn't dissipate, even though I could have made a lot of money at McKinsey or gone to work for, at the time, investment banks were a pretty attractive place to go. So I called them all up and I took my name out of the hat. And then and I did it in this order because I didn't want to, um, you know, I didn't want to wimp out. So I turned down every offer I had and every job interview that I was involved in. And I went to his office and I knocked on his door and he said, come in. And I said to him, I explained that I had withdrawn my name from all opportunities. And then I said, I want to come work for you. I don't care what I do. I'll wash your car. You don't even have to pay me. I just want to work for you. Of course, I don't know what I would have done in terms of feeding myself, but anyway, that's what I said. And he said, well, as a matter of fact, I just recently got approval from Stanford to hire Stanford's first case writer, because all our cases used to be HBS cases. Right. Uh, and would you like to be a case writer at Stanford? Well, oh my gosh, I get to work for him and I'm going to get a paycheck. So it was an instant yes. Yeah. So then I came back in the fall and he said, okay, here's the first case you have to write or you, you're going to write. And it's on Kirk Reedinger and Jamie Turner, who had just recently pulled together a group of investors to cover their expenses while they went to look for a company to buy. And they called it a search fund. And they bought this company in Denver, which was a trade school. So write a case on it. So here I am writing a case on the first search fund. I'm not even sure there was any formality to the term search fund. And as I'm writing the case, everything came together, David. I, you know, I said I didn't want to be involved in markets that were going to determine my outcome. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I was very interested in operating and executing. I didn't have a partner. I didn't have any private money at all. I thought, oh my gosh, are you telling me that people will pay me money and cover my expenses while I go buy an existing company to buy? I'm in. So then I went to Irv's office at some point and told him I wanted to raise a search fund and asked if he would be an investor, my first investor. And I was once again terrified. And he said yes. And so I ended up raising the second search fund. Wow. That's an incredible story. I mean, I know Jamie and uh, Kirk, having worked with them to place their CEO and their general counsel amongst a few others. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, they ran into a headwind of key TAM lawsuits that were industry driven and not driven by their performance. Again, going back to what you talked about, sometimes you have forces that you cannot control. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, they, they, they sort of had an experience similar to my dad's. Yes, uh, they did. But, it, but at the time I viewed their industry as rock solid and stable and not subject to external forces. Well, no, and I and people are still heavily investing in that industry, and and in in fact, I I think I know another one of Irv's case writers, Nick, uh, out in Arizona, um, who is running a a nursing college, and this is a good story about Irv, is that you know this is obviously just a you know four or five years ago when Irv really had probably a million other things to do, he actually lobbed a call in to our number one candidate to get them over the goal line. Like, hmm. uh, just a great story. And that person has been brilliant and, uh, been there for now four or five years and, uh, and they're still growing. So, uh, 
so Irv is, uh, that, that takes me to sort of another question, you know, Irv, um, it's incredible to me that how one person can have such an impact on so many lives, you know, just by who they are and how they do things. Um, and you seem to have had, you know, a very similar experience. You know, it, it, uh, I, I've worked on companies all around the United States where your name is involved or, or you've been a mentor. Um, what, what did you learn from Irv that you think is important and maybe that's starting to fade a little bit that we need to focus on more as we go forward? Well, the only reason I'm pausing, David, is because it's a long list. Yeah, it's and probably all in your book, too, by the way. <laughs> well, let me say like, let me say this. I think the most important thing that I learned from Irv, but that most people who had experience learned from Irv, was this sense of, and I mentioned it earlier, this sense of ethics and kindness and empathy and uh, compassion that can go hand in hand with being a hard-nosed commercial business leader. They're not at odds. And in fact, to take it one step further, they, they complement each other. And if I had had a different important person in my life early on, who I admire, who I wanted to copy, I could have copied arguably a completely different set of ethics and values. So for example, you, you know, the name Jeff Skilling, who ended up right. going to jail, who Enron, he was my boss at McKinsey. Wow. And I thought pretty hard about going to work for him after I sold my first company. And of course, I had the influences of Irving Grossbeck at the time. But I do wonder if I'd gone to work for him at Enron, I would have been there at a very magical time at Enron working for the Crown Prince. And I wonder to what extent the hubris uh, and his sense of ethics would have worn off on me. But instead, I got to hang around with somebody like Irv Grosbeck. Now, one of the things that people don't fully appreciate is that Irv's influence is still profound with search fund investors and search fund entrepreneurs today. And here's why. So Jim Southern, who did a masterful job of sort of laying the groundwork for entrepreneurship through acquisition. Yeah, and he's terrific. And himself and many, many, we're all disciples of that school of thought, which meant that when other people came along after us, we modeled that. And I've told people many, many times that one of the things that's really important and a requirement and also, I hate to reuse the word again, but I really mean it, magical about the search fund industry and the search fund ecosystem is that we all behave in a certain way that, for example, your your word is way more important than any document. And I am I will freely admit that when I'm sent things to sign from people that are grew up in the search fund ecosystem, I don't need to read them. Hmm. Don't need to read them. Because I know they say what the person said they were going to say. And I know if there's any ambiguity, I'm never going to go to page 42 and point to a particular paragraph or argue where the semicolon is. I'm going to call the person up and we're going to find out what's fair quickly and move on. And that happens 
all the time in the search funnel. Well, that's no, her gross influence. Yeah, you're bang on. I mean, it's uh, I'm the same way. You know, I'm uh, I'm always sort of running from one engagement to the next, and uh, but when I get referred, you know, uh, uh, an entrepreneur to support from Kevin to Wheel or Gerald Risk or some of the others that you've been involved with, I instantly say I'm in and I don't have to look at the company or what it's doing because I know the person is going to be superb, is going to have that same ethical, moral fabric and, uh, and drive that they have. It's never been, I've never been misled, um, by that. So I, I understand that way of thinking. Um, well, maybe Dave, at this point, um, you know, I'm excited to, uh, read the new book, the manager's handbook. Um, do you want to introduce that a little bit for us and tell us a little bit what we're in for? It's the book that I wish someone would have handed me when I bought my first company and right. when I was an early manager. So that's the book I wrote. So how it, how it evolved is that I would tend to get the same phone calls and questions from entrepreneurs that I'm invested in or that I have a relationship with and former students. And I thought, well, I, I, each time I answer this question, it's, it's the same question, which makes sense. I mean, people are, I de people are experiencing similar issues. I mean, that makes perfect sense. And so I decided to write up my answer in a more complete, thoughtful way, send that to the person in advance. And then I could follow it up with a phone call where we could talk about the things that were particular or idiosyncratic to their question. I want to do a better job basically answering their question and mentoring them. Well, that evolved to a library of white papers, if you will. And at one point I thought, okay, well, what about the people I'm associated with who don't call me on a particular question? So I've written this up. Why not just put it all together? So I put it together in a little self-published book and I printed 350 copies and just gave it to people. And I got really, really strong feedback, surprisingly strong feedback from people saying, oh my God, I wish you'd given this to me earlier. And so that made it crystal clear that I was onto something. So I wrote the manager's handbook, which is not, by the way, David, a book about how to manage an organization like I did. My job was to take the experience that I had as a five-time CEO and use that experience to study the people that were really, really good at getting things done better than any, way better than me. And so I studied them and I thought, well, I, maybe I'm going to identify certain attributes or things that they do. Wasn't quite sure what would happen, but what happened, what ended up happening, David, is that I identified five skill areas that all of them shared. There were no exceptions. Dwight Eisenhower, Oprah Winfrey, Steve Jobs, didn't matter. They all shared these five skill areas that they excelled in. Thought that was interesting. But I wanted a book that was useful. I, I kept telling my wife, I said, I want a book that people will use, not that they will read. I didn't want to write a book that was inspirational, that people sort of a page turner, but then it didn't change behavior. I wanted to change the behavior of managers. I wanted to help them manage better. So I looked at those primary skills, those five skills, and I and I was, was grappling with it. And I was watching later someone on YouTube play Rachmaninoff's uh, piece on the piano. And I was thinking about, I don't play the piano. I was thinking about what it's like to be able to learn how to play a piece like that. And I thought, 
oh my gosh, that person had to learn the difference between a sharp and a flat and how to hold their hands over 88 keys and how to read music yep. and where the pedals were. And I realized it was a culmination of a series of sub skills that they all pulled together. And that was exactly the same concept uh, with the manager's handbook. I thought, okay, identify the skills, identify the subskills underneath it, explain the subskills in a very straightforward how-to format, master the subskills, and you'll master the majors, the primary skills. So for example, one of them shouldn't be surprising is the ability to build a great team. Well, I've been saying, and everyone else has been saying at Stanford Business School forever, I've been teaching there for close to 15 years, build a team, people are important, but we never really said how you go about doing that. Well, it turns out, for example, that you need to be able to do 360 reviews. That's one of the pieces, one of the subskills, like holding your hand over the keys that leads to building a good team. Well, how do you do a 360? So I, I identified the people that I thought were outstanding at doing 360 reviews, studied what they did, harmonized their best practices, and put it into 12 pages. And in fact, each chapter that I wrote, my goal was to write it in as few words as possible. I was not trying to fill a book because the people who buy my book are busy. They're running an organization. They have to get things done. And then they want to go home and spend some time with their kids. They don't have time to read seven books on hiring and three books on delegation and you know, watch webinars on how to run meetings and so forth. They want to get the information in a quick, concise way. And so that's why so I ended up writing the book in that format. And in fact, David, at the end of each chapter, there's a quick summary. It's just listed, you know, one through seven or one through 12 of the key things that if they were taking notes during the chat, re reading the chapter, they would have written down. So you don't have to write it down. I, I even took the notes for you in the book. Wow. Wow. You, you know, it's interesting that, uh, you know, I it came to the same point in in my career where I had been interviewing CEOs. I'm a very curious person on leadership. I've always been uh, passionate about why. And I've sat on, I can tell you, dozens and dozens of panels um, over the years where private equity firms argue uh, about what are the leading uh, traits for a good leader and and no one could ever come to a single conclusion and so when I started thinking about how I could give back and people were throwing book ideas at me um, I was exactly where you are I, I'm just not um, the person like you are that can get it down on paper which is really why this whole podcast came about is is to do something similar is to bring great leaders like yourself um, out to the public in an authentic way so that they can actually understand that anybody can do it. Just like you said, there are a set of skills you can work on. There are a set of sub skills you can work on. And if you have the right people supporting you, you can do just about anything and lead anything. And uh, so that's why I was so excited when I heard about what you were doing. Um, can you give me a couple by of the, examples? Way, David, I, I love that. I love that you said, yeah, you know, that it was open to everybody. And uh, I'm, that might have been my word to say everybody, but uh, that there was this really exciting aspect of my discovery, which was uh, see that on the surface it, it was a set of skills and so forth. But but there was this exciting aspect, which was that 
that being a great entrepreneur is not about looking a certain way, being raised a certain way, going to a certain school, being a big athlete, not being like, like you observe, there was no commonality there. And so I felt like one of the things about writing the manager's handbook is that I was going to democratize leadership to some extent. And somebody who thought, geez, you know, I didn't grow up in the right zip code and I didn't go to the right school. I guess I can't be an entrepreneur. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. You can be an entrepreneur if you're willing to work hard and learn these skills. That is exciting to me. Yeah. And, and And that's really been the challenge from a talent perspective is that, you know, you you come into these boardrooms of these growth companies, the investors are excited. The board wants to make a difference. They want to find, you know, the right leadership and they all imagine, you know, Jack Welsh coming through the door, you know, a larger than life take over a room personality. But, but to be candid, you know, probably three quarters of the best leaders I've met are completely the opposite you know, very, uh, very comfortable in their skin, good listeners, um, you know, are quieter, but very thoughtful. And when they speak, it makes an impact. Um, how did you, how, how do you feel about that kind of thinking? Well, I don't find that there's commonalities in terms of personality types among entrepreneurs. Some of them are extroverts. Some of those are are introverts, sorry. Some speak great and earn standing ovations and some are pretty dull. There are fantastic entrepreneurs that are bipolar. So I don't think that any of those are licenses to become a good entrepreneur or reasons to exclude yourself. But I do think that mastering these five skills is a requirement for being really, really good as an entrepreneur. And I had a, um, just take it a step further. One of my thought mentors and writing mentors uh, is Michael Porter, who was a professor, is a professor at Harvard Business School. Yeah. And he had read drafts and I had talked to him about this a lot. I mean, he, he has written more books on business in terms of uh, what has sold and uh, what people follow than any other professor, any other business writer in the world. So he was worth paying attention to. Sure. And late in the process, I had written the introduction. I said, will you take a look at the introduction? And he was pretty familiar with the material. And he's a pretty blunt guy. And he said, you're thinking about this all wrong. I said, well, what? And he said, what you've done is you've identified five skills and these sub skills and you're describing them as if they're things that you can take or you, you can take or not off a menu that they're optional and he said what you need to communicate to your reader is that they all fit together and then he related his uh uh, construct of the five forces, the you know Michael Porter's five forces on strategy. Right, Are they all in together. And he used an example. He said, "You talk about the importance of being able to set and adhere to priorities, but that can't happen if you haven't hired good people." I thought, okay, that's a good point. And he said, "And it also can't happen if you don't if you're not good at running meetings and you can't run an effective meeting." And then he went through multiple examples, and he took. The same kind, he, he took examples of all these sub skills and showed me how they do fit together. And he said, if your reader just, just picks and chooses, they're just going to pick the easy stuff. 
and they're going to way undershoot their potential. But where this thing gets turbocharged is if you integrate these five skills together, then you have companies like Apple Computer or Coca-Cola, companies that you look at and you go, how do these, how can somebody sell so, sell soda water decade after decade after decade and crush the competition? Or how can Apple Computer be worth $3 trillion when they are competing with so many other really, really smart people? Well, Steve Jobs and Scott Cook, for, for, or Tim Cook, are fully embraced these five skill areas. So I rewrote the introduction, and then it was a little bit after that that I realized that he was, I had only half understood what Professor Porter was saying, because he wasn't just saying that you integrate the five skills together, you don't pick and choose them. But he said that then you have to run your organization that way. This is not a book, in my mind, it is not a book for the CEO to read and then say, okay, well, this is how I'm going to start operating. This is a book that the CEO reads, and then the CEO buys five copies and gives it to all their direct reports and says, this is an integrated way that we're going to run our business. It's not. It's, it's one thing for me to run my meetings effectively. We want a company where everybody runs their meetings effectively. It's one thing for me to manage my time well, but I need everyone in my organization to manage their time well. That's how you crush your rivals. That, that makes uh total sense and and i was thinking about that after uh, a couple of our discussions um about some of the people when you were doing the research for the book that that really stood out for you um that uh, really were emblematic of of all of these skills you're talking about well uh i a couple examples that i really like are uh, Sam Walton. And the reason I like Sam Walton so much is that if you think about what his world was like when he got started, he was surrounded by Kmart, Target, and JCPenney's. He did not invent retail. He did not invent the department store. He did not change consumer behavior at all. And look what he did. He crushed them all. He annihilated those three companies, even though they had a half a, a half a century head start in some cases on on him. Or you take an example uh, like Facebook, and while Facebook is going through different transitions now, uh, they won the original battle. Well, they started way behind. For example, MySpace, which was venture capital backed, had I think it was fifty million subscribers when Facebook was just getting started. So, and, and they were still buying their bandwidth from the same people. They were identifying the same customers. And Facebook crushed MySpace and the three or four other competitors that all had had starts with them. It's why there's JetBlue and not TWA and Pan Am. And, you know, if you ask me what my number one superstar is, it's Steve Jobs. And in terms of these five skills. And what's curious about Steve Jobs is that most people think of him as this iconoclast, this innovator. He could see around corners. He knew what we wanted before we knew what we wanted. And that's fun to think of him in that way. But that's actually not really where his magic was. What I came to understand and learn is that his magic was, for example, he was masterful at building a team. And if you, you need to look no further than what happened after he passed away to see how he had built Apple Computer in a way that he could die and they didn't skip a beat. 
Absolutely. I actually think that is that, that's his, that's his biggest legacy. And I know you're you're very familiar with the company. Um, you know, having worked for 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 them as a, have them as a client. Uh, another example of Steve Jobs. There's a whole chapter on setting and adhering to priorities. There is nobody that was more ruthless about keeping the organization focused than Apple Computer. And the way he did it, he didn't just say we're going to be focused today. He built in systems and processes to make sure that the company stayed focused. And that's why they, and, and you know, Sony invented portable music and a guy at Stanford research Institute invented the mouse and, you know, Andrew K invented the portable computer. I mean, all of the real inventions and innovations came from outside of Apple. What Apple did and what Steve jobs did is he harnessed these five forces to blow them all out of the water the same way Sam Walton did to blow everybody out of the water with their own ideas. Now, I I also used interesting everyday examples. So I because I didn't want the book the manager's handbook to be read by somebody and they think, "Well, okay, that's great, but I'm not Sam Walton and I'm not Steve Jobs. I'm never going to be like those people." So I guess I can ignore these. So I used a lot of everyday examples. Uh, one example is a, a woman named Gayathri Datar, and she was a, a student of mine at Stanford University and uh, is building flooring materials. She's, she's in the construction business in East Africa, but wow. she's doing it in a way that is completely changing the lives of millions of rural poor in East Africa. But she's using it, she's doing it through these five skills. And I talk about her in particular, about a transition that she went through, which I played a very small role in her transition uh, about her management practice. He was another guy that's in the recycling business. And so while there's these larger than life figures, I also show how everyday managers use these five skills effectively to run their own organizations, because I want this book to be on the desk of the everyday manager, not the... Yeah, not the godlike figure that most of us will never ever uh, achieve. Yeah, and that's that's a good point. Um, and you talked about you know this venture in Africa. Um, one of the things that that we discuss a lot when we're trying to identify um, terrific young leadership is some of the extracurricular activities and the give back in the community. And, and I think it is a big piece of what makes great leaders as well. Um, how do you feel about that part of a person's development? And uh, tell us a little bit about what you're doing in that area. Well, I don't believe that uh, giving back is a requirement to leading an organization effectively. Okay. However... I happen to think that it's an important value and it's a value that I believe that I got principally from two people, three people. One was my mother as a school teacher. Right. And I watched, I watched how generous she was with her time. The second I'd mentioned was Hugh O'Brien and how he had made some pretty significant sacrifices in his career so that he could create the Hugh O'Brien Youth Foundation. And then the last was Irv Grosbeck. And what was interesting about Irv Grosbeck's influence is that he put it into words. So there's a, a, a phrase in Deuteronomy, of course, it's gone through translations. And so uh, 
this is this is the translation that I prefer, which is that we've all drunk from wells that we didn't dig, and we've been warmed by fires that we didn't kindle. And what Irv means by that when he refers to Deuteronomy is he reminds us that that our successes generally are built on the efforts of other people. And by recognizing that, we instill a certain obligation to do the same for others. Because when you when when you look around at your nice house and your car and whatever whatever you got that 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 represents your economic success, let's say that you're you know if you're running if you're running a, a commercial organization, and you think it's all about you, and you focus on all of your struggles growing up and how you made these sacrifices, and th- th- it becomes a sort of egocentric, um, self centered view of the world. And so then you tend to not be looking outside of your world uh, with a with a desire to give back, except that maybe you want your name on a building or you want to be honored at some event. But that's, again, that's about you. That's an ego thing. That's right. Irv's point is that you look around at all the things that, that you value in your life uh, and you have to recognize that you didn't get there by yourself. And so that creates more of a sense of responsibility. And you also end up giving back and not, hey, look at me, I'm doing something special, aren't I great? But you're doing it because you're supposed to. Now, in Judaism, there's a, a phrase called sadaka, which effectively kind of relates to charity and um, uh, giving. But one of the literal translations of sadaka is the corners of the field. And the idea is that way back in ancient times, that as travelers, Bedouin travelers would come through, uh, they would they had a a right to the corners of the field. So whatever you were growing in the corners of the field, if they needed because they were hungry, that was theirs. And the concept of sadaka in the corners of the field is that you're not giving anything. You're not sacrificing anything. There's no charity because the corners of the field are not yours to begin with. And when you combine what Irv said and that notion of the corners of the field, it completely changes your view of charity. And uh, so it le- it leaves you it leaves you not doing it because you're mighty and you're grand and you're in a position and it, it, you're doing it because it's just what you're supposed to do. Right, and and that's well said. And and I think that um, one of the things that I love that's really built into the search fund model is this continuing mentorship, which is, I think, a critical give back. And, and when I look at earlier in this search fund history, um, the kinds of talents that young entrepreneurs had to, like you had with Irv and others, that they gave their time to you and shared a lot of these experiences. Uh, as you see the search industry continue to thrive and grow, um, what is your, how confident are you that, that they'll continue to get that kind of, uh, mentorship, um, or will it be watered down and how do we avoid that? David, when I got started, mentorship came in the form of calling up Jim Southern. It was one of my early investors or Irv Grosbeck and asking for advice. And it was very effective and it was informal and it was unstructured. And it was also not scalable. 
But at the time, there was only one search fund entrepreneur every year or so. Well, now the numbers are quite large. And that form of mentorship and giving advice is not scalable. About 15 years ago, what happened is that in, in investors that were active in the search fund world started to institutionalize that training. Right. And so, for example, in my firm, Food La Food Partners, and, and we invest in quite a few search fund entrepreneurs each year, we formalize the training. Now, you might hear that and say formalize and, and, and feel constrained. No, it just means that I wrote a book, The Manager's Handbook, to formalize it, to try to get all of my best thinking into writing so that somebody so, so that it was right there, for example. Uh, another way that it's formalized is there's a, a firm trilogy uh, search partners who we have a yep. high regard for. And we did an event for select number of search fund entrepreneur CEOs that was that were all sharing a particular problem. And we did that together. And it was a two-day uh, training workshop. So we've replaced those phone calls to Jim Southern and Irv Grossbeck and Bill Egan and so forth with this institutionalized training. And I think it's actually better because we've harnessed the wisdom that was embedded in Irv Grossbeck's comments, and we've we've for, we, we've embedded that into sort of a formalized structure, so it's much more accessible to people. So people said, "Well, search fund on, search fund returns, as you know, David, have been about thirty five percent compounded IRR year after year yeah, after it's year. Terrific." And they keep and they have not diminished. And I'm often asked, well, returns are going to come down just like they do in venture capital and private equity and everything else. Well, there's a number of reasons why they haven't come down. But but one of the largest reasons why they haven't come down is the institutionalization of the training and mentorship that has I didn't have when I was a search fund entrepreneur and that people do today. And so they start on third base where, you know, I had to crawl through the dirt to get to first base. Right. Uh, we're starting everybody on third base. That, you know, that that's a great answer. And it, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, one of the things that, one of the reasons I gravitate to the search fund model is that it, it really is um, based around uh, recurring revenue models and businesses where people do make the difference and management does make the difference. It's not a black box or a exciting new technology or first to market kind of thing. Um, and that's when you're in my business, you get your reward from seeing the people you place perform and, and it no better way to have it demonstrated than in a search fund model, to be honest. So it's always been very rewarding for me to get in there. Um, I, I couldn't really do a call without talking. I, I know you and I have been both involved with a company called Asherian and, uh, and Kevin Tawil, um, being a, uh, uh, a Canadian as well and a very humble one. Um, tell me a little bit about your experience with them and, and what's that, what is, what's that meant to your career? Asherian and Kevin Tawil and his partner, Jim Ellis are, quoted quite often in my book uh, to make references to specific skill areas that I thought that they were quite quite effective at. And Asurian is an example of a company that has harnessed all five skills and institutionalized it. My experience with Asurian was 
two years after I left as a case writer, so the case writer position is about a year, Jim Ellis became a case writer. And then the year after that, Kevin Twilwork was a case writer. Right. And they decided to raise a search fund. And Kevin or Jim, I think it was Kevin, called me up to ask me if I would invest in his search fund. Well, back then, I mean, you had to grovel to get investors. And <laughs> I was running this company in Texas, and I didn't have any money. But I, it was the only thing I, only thing I knew to invest in. So I told Kevin, I said, well, we're actually in the process of selling our company. And I want to invest in your search fund, but I don't have any money at all. So can I invest in your search fund contingent upon getting my company sold? Wow, that's terrific. Yeah, and it also shows you <laughs> what, what the fundraising world. Well, was like no, it, but the and, in most course, of, sorry, you know the 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 other thing that was amazing when I was working with him is that he was building that team during you know the tech run and had to compete. You know, selling warranties is not the most exciting place for for leaders at that time to want to jump into. Um, yeah, but you know, I put him in a room with Kevin for an hour, and they thought they were selling the most exciting product in the world. Um, and it was really just because he built a team that everybody would love to work with. I was on their board for quite a few years with Bill Egan and Joel Pearson. So Bill Egan had built one of the large, wonderful venture capital firms in Boston. And then also they opened up an office in the West Coast. And he was an early investor in my search fund. And then Joel Peterson, who used to run the world's largest real estate firm and went on to be a founding investor and chairman of JetBlue for a long time. And he and I taught a course together at Stanford for a while mm -hmm. and Irv Grossman. And I remember going to those early board meetings. And I mean, I was the youngest person there by, of the outside directors, not Kevin and Jim. I was the youngest person probably by 20 years. And I was just going to wow. board meetings thinking, <laughs> why am I here? But it was a wonderful opportunity to just see a company built from $8 million in sales to billions in revenue and see how that company progressed to those different stages to watch Kevin and Jim. Uh, eventually, Jim retired, and, and Kevin obviously continues to run the company. Yeah. But how Kevin and Jim uh, navigated the company through these different uh, inflection points, always hiring in advance. He hired a Gerald Risk, who's a good friend of mine, who I also teach with, who was the CFO and then eventually was the president. Another fellow Canadian, I'm sure you're... Yeah, no, he's a good friend of mine David. too, yep. Um, so Kevin did well with Canadians. Uh, and then, and so that was a key hire early on. And Gerald was there throughout all of Assurian's growth and success. Uh, and so he was always looking to hire uh, people in advance. And one day he came into the board meeting and said, I want to hire this guy, Brett Camoli. <laughs> and so he was looking for a COO. But the problem was, and Brett checked all of, all of Kevin and Jim's boxes. The problem was that Brett didn't want to be COO or president. Brett wanted to be CEO. Right. Well, that was Kevin's job. And Kevin said, this person has a chance to transform this company. So what I'd like to suggest is that we make him the CEO and I become chairman. And that was a stunning thing for someone to do. Absolutely. And Absolutely. that's what he did. And he hired Brett and Brett was 
fantastic and instrumental in getting things done, embracing all of the things that were in the five skills of management. I mean, Brett was someone that I accessed at times on specific chapters in this book. Uh, and uh, so anyway, that, no, that's, it, that's my it, his history with Ashuri in it. I, 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 was, I was blessed with being an early investor and that was financially fantastic, but I was more importantly blessed with the opportunity to work on a board with Irv and Joel and Bill, and then also watch Kevin and Jim and Brett and uh, Gerald show me how you build a really, really big company. No, it's an it's it's an incredible story, and they're all that whole list you, you just rhymed off are are just uh, some of the most important people really uh, in the business community over the last thirty years, and I admire all of them, and and they all have very consistent value systems which which I can't ever speak enough about. Um, Dave, what, you know, we've talked a lot about um, your business life and where you grew up. What are you doing for fun now? God, you've, you you know, you've worked so hard all these years. Uh, What, where, when you get a day off, what are you doing? Pretty seasonal because I like the outdoors. Yesterday I was on my sailboat with my grandson, Charlie, and my oldest daughter, Rachel, and some other friends. And, it's just wonderful to have a grandson and my granddaughter was a little too young to be on the boat yet uh, and watch him run around and explore. And we went to a little bay and dropped an anchor and put the swim platform down and he's dangling his feet in the water. And I'm thinking about how this is in Buzzards Bay in Massachusetts. And actually by coincidence, David, uh, the boat was anchored right in front of my grandfather. The coincidence is I was talking about my grandfather, my grandfather's house, which was also on the water. Wow. So here I am with grandson in front of his great grandfather's house, <laughs> the, the coal mining magnet, uh, dangling his feet in the same water that I used to dangle my feet in when I was on my grandfather's sailboat. So that was a special moment. Uh, I love to ski. I, I, I'm actually a cold water or, or a cold weather person i prefer the cold weather so i like to do winter sports uh and uh if i if it's not nice outside reading and writing is what i do for fun uh well you're uh you're certainly situated in in some places where you can get great skiing most you know even maybe year round um well listen dave i i this has been a a really incredible day for me um, I have, uh, I've waited a long time to have this kind of discussion with you. I'm, I'm really just in awe of all that you've been able to accomplish and, and the, the continued impact and your desire to have a continued impact on the business community. Uh, I can't wait to get my copy of the book and, and get through it. And, uh, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, anything else you'd like to leave us with? Well, the book, I would be remiss if I didn't say that the book wasn't available for order on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Okay. Uh, I would like to have people buy it because <laughs> I think that I think there's good content in there. Uh, and so that would be my that would be my 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 shameless commercial plug. Okay, that's but good because, though. It, no, they, they should buy yeah, it. Yeah. But beyond that, no, I, I really enjoyed the conversation, David, and you you lead a wonderful conversation and you you took me down on paths that I didn't think I was going to be on. And I 
when I was getting ready to, for this podcast, I wanted to be prepared for the podcast because I wanted to do a good job for you because I admire you and I wanted to make sure that your listeners were well taken care of. But after about 10 seconds, I realized that we were just having a chat and I really enjoyed it. It was a, it was a special hour or so with you. Well, that's, and that's exactly what I hoped we would do and, and we'll continue to do. And I would recommend, I think anybody that listens to this podcast will, will run out and buy the book and probably buy, as you suggest, one for each of their uh, management teams. So, um, you know, enjoy the rest of your summer and uh, I look forward to catching up with you soon. Thanks again. Okay, David. All right. Take care. This has been the RBK Show. Stay resilient.